I've been working on, if you've been in our house, which I don't know how many of y'all have actually been inside our house. I know when y'all came over that time, you might have gone in for the bathroom. So you might not have even noticed this, but uh, we have a dining room table in our dining room. And I built that in 2017 when we moved into the house. Primarily was because we didn't have, you know, $1,000 to spend on a nice table. And, um, and so I was like, well, I could spend 100 bucks and build it myself, right? And, um, and so anyway, so uh, I knew nothing about building tables. Still don't. But uh, I knew nothing about building tables. So here's what I did. I went to Lowe's. I got um, this gigantic, it was cheaper to buy the big, long piece of wood than it was to buy individual pieces of wood. What I did not know is the longer the wood is, the more warped it is. You know, didn't know that. So I just saw the money. So I was just like, just give me the longest one you have. Um, I got it chopped up into equal, you know, four pieces, slap those four pieces together. Um, and then I had a problem. I bought some wood glue, but I realized once I got the wood home because it was warped, um, it, they didn't fit together. There was like big spaces in between them. So my solution was um, I'm going to take more wood on the underside and I'm going to screw them together as tight as I can with other wood boards. So the tabletop of this table is, I kid you not, at least 500 pounds. Because it's like, you know what I mean? It is literally nothing but wood. And I mean layers and layers and layers of wood. And the problem is, is the legs that I built are like, like 20 pounds, okay? So it's just like wobbly anyway. And um, so for five years now, it's been like that. And we just haven't changed it. And it's just like wonky and all this stuff. Well, anyway, a couple weeks ago, uh, Jordan was like, about a month ago, actually, Jordan was like, um, I think you need to fix our table. And, you know, of course, I was just like, no, like, I don't want to do that. I'd rather pay somebody, but then it's Christmas coming up. So no, we can't do that. And um, so there's a friend of ours um, that um, the Edmonds, if y'all watching, thank y'all. Um, but there's some friends of ours from the church we were at before that let us borrow the equipment. Okay, and so I'm doing research. I'm doing all this stuff. And so I get a saw. There's a point to this, I promise. I get a saw. I get, you know, all the clamps. I get the right wood glue and all that stuff. And so I take the pieces of wood and I shave off the edge of each piece, right? So that gets rid of the warping. So it makes each piece level. Done. Then I just coat it in wood glue, like so much wood glue that, I mean, we could get bombed by North Korea and that table will stay together, okay? And so um, I don't know why it's always North Korea. They're just always talking about missiles. Um, and so anyway, um, which honestly sounds a lot like us, but anyway. So, um, so I got this put together, got the glue, got the clamps. I mean, like I got the right gear. I got the knot, well, some of the knowledge. Um, I put it together. It all stays together. So now it's like tight together, right? And then my other problem was, is not only was it warped on the sides, it was warped in like height as well. So I got it together. It's pretty level except for one end and one piece in the middle is literally just doing this. So the rest of the table is like this and it's like this, right? So I go to Jordan. I'm like, it's close enough. There's no more gaps. You know what I mean? There's no more. It's all together. It's close enough. I think we can. I think we can live with this. And she's like, "You're gonna. You're gonna have to fix that." You know. And I'm like, "I don't know how to fix that." You know what I'm saying? So my answer was, "I'm gonna take a saw and try to just cut that piece off." Did not work. Um, did not work at all. So then Jordan, and at that point I'm mad. And then Jordan is like, well, "Why don't you go ask our neighbor across the street for his electric sander?" 
and maybe you can just sand it down. I'm like, Jordan, I, you can't sand this down. Like, it's like, you know what I mean? It's like three inches. Um, and she was like, I think it might work. Like, just, you know, just go. I had the sand. She was like, just go ask him. So I'm mad, you know, and I'll, I'm like, I go across the street. Hey, I don't, I'm literally, I'm like, I don't think this is going to work, but I've got to do this. You know, I was asking. Long story short, of course, it worked. And, um, and so, you know, and so, which kind of makes you even more mad. And, um, and so anyway, so it's flat. It worked. I got it stained. It's amazing now. So it's like, just like you bought it at the store. Here's my point in telling you all this. In 2017, when I built this table, I did not have the knowledge that I have today, which is still not a lot, but I didn't have the knowledge that I had today, and I didn't have the equipment to build it correctly, right? So I had the right, um, and I I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but I had the right material, okay? I had the right material. What I didn't have was the right tools and the right way of thinking to put the right material together in the right way, okay? And so over five years, what has happened is we had a table and we had the right material. We had the wood, we had the stain, we had all that stuff. But because there were cracks in this table because it wasn't done correctly, things would begin to collect in those cracks. And when things collected in those cracks, the table got dirty and we weren't able to clean it right, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I'm like fixing this table and I just, I I begin to hear the Lord speaking through this, that what we have been walking through, and it's going to connect to what we're talking about today, what we've been walking through is when we started, no matter when that was for you, for me that was five years ago, for a lot of you that was maybe one, two, three years ago, but when we started, we we had the right equip, we had the right stuff, which was essentially a mindset that like, I'm ready for the Lord to move, okay, but what we didn't have was the knowledge and the equipping to be able to take that material and make it what it's actually supposed to be. And what I want to encourage you is with is over the past, you know, years, specifically the past year and a half, the Lord has really been giving us the right tools and the right mindset to do that. He's not been giving us new material, okay? We have the same we're reading from the same text. We're in the same church, right? We're singing a lot of the same songs. We're doing things in a lot of ways in the same way, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., which is just about when every other church, right? We've got the same stuff. But the difference is we've been equipped and we have the right tools to see the right material correctly now. But the responsibility for us is to not let that equipping, to not let that because of laziness, keep us from doing the right thing with the right stuff. Does that make sense? It, it, was, it was sheer laziness that kept me from fixing that table a long time ago. Sheer laziness. I just did not want to do it, you know? And in a lot of ways, it's the same way with us, and I, I use us loosely, but whatever us includes, it's the same way where it is not a move of the Lord that needs to happen. It's happening. It is not we need to be equipped correctly. Everybody in this church could just about lead another church because of how we have taught over the past couple of years. Okay? Y'all know more than a lot of pastors know. And so it's not because we don't have the right equipment, which means 
if we're not progressing in what the kingdom should look like in our lives, it's sheer apathy. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. So I want to start with a reading. This is uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, this book, actually, my uh, Old Testament professor wrote. Um, but uh, in it, she has a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I just want to read this. Okay, uh, Just so you can kind of grasp what's happening, um, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian, a uh, pastor, really that lived in the time of Hitler's persecution with the Nazis, okay? Which is very relevant for us. We know the Nazis, you know, the whole thing. And so uh, the church had an opportunity to either kind of sit back and let Hitler do whatever he was going to do or step in and say, this is not right, and that was basically a death sentence. You were signing up to die. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, along with people like Karl Barth and others, uh, theologians and pastors, stepped in to go against the Nazi regime. And because of that, in this letter, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is in prison and he's writing a letter from Nazi prison knowing he's probably going to die here. And he writes this, okay, with that in mind. I'm going to read a little uh, uh, one sentence of preface and then I'm going to read his quote. This is what uh, Ellen Davis, who writes this section, she is a Old Testament scholar at Duke uh, University. She writes this preface before leading into this. She says this, um, writing from a Nazi prison in a confinement that would lead to his execution within a year, Bonhoeffer reflected upon the changed theological perspective that circumstances had forced upon those who participated in Christian resistance against Hitler. And this is the quote. From him. Is it not true to say that individualistic concern for personal salvation has almost completely left all of us? Hear this. Are we not really under the impression that there are more important things than bothering with such a matter? Individual personal salvation is what he's talking about. Perhaps not more important than the matter itself, but more than bothering about it. I know it sounds pretty monstrous to say that, but is it not at bottom even biblical? And then he gives an example. Is there any concern in the Old Testament about saving one's soul at all? Is not righteousness and the kingdom of God on earth the focus of everything? And is not Romans 3.14 following to the culmination of the view that in God alone is righteousness and not in an individualistic doctrine of salvation? Then he goes deeper. It is not with the next world that we are concerned, but with this world as created and preserved and set subject to laws and atoned for and made new. What is above the world is in the gospel. Listen, what is above the world is in the gospel intended to exist for this world. I mean that not in the anthropocentric sense of liberal, pietistic, ethical theology, but in the biblical sense of the creation and of the incarnation crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is, there is 
a lot in that one section. This is a letter. So Bonhoeffer is in prison. They know they're going to die. And essentially he's saying, we're all in prison. So it's him, other resistors, and then, of course, Jews. Okay, We're in prison, and he's saying, while we're in this prison, none of us are thinking about my personal salvation. That's left us. What we now see is what the Old Testament Israelites saw, which was not an invitation for individual salvation or individual enlightenment, but what we now see is the cry of a community for cosmic redemption. So what he says is, is, is not the gospel, even that which is above the world, is it not there and intended for this world? as created and preserved and ultimately called the new creation. And that radically changes what we think about the gospel. We think it's what do you do with salvation? And what the Bible teaches is not what do we do with salvation. The Bible teaches how should we respond to the fact that God has given us Salvation, And I say we on purpose because none of this is about me. The entire story of God and his people is about us. What you have to sacrifice when you make the gospel individualistic is a gospel that is for the world. You, in order to make the gospel about you, you have to sacrifice a gospel that is for the world. Once again, we are bumping up against our old foe. And if you're sick of hearing this, sorry. We're bumping up against, in this view of the gospel, our old foe, which is a Grecian philosophy that man is the measure of all things. So let me give you a quick review. If man is the measure of all things, all things has to include the gospel. The gospel is, as we think, what you do with it. And therefore, the gospel for us, makes what Christ has done a footnote at best to what we have done or will do. In our vision of the gospel, Christ doesn't save, we save based on what we do with Christ. But what you do with Christ does absolutely matter. But your response to the gospel is simply that, a response. And a response to a concrete reality that is established on your behalf, which gives you and I the luxury to even respond. Think about this. For us to say, I need my, my whiteboard. For us to say that we are responding to the gospel, what we have to say is that a gospel has been set in place for us to respond to. Okay? So when we say respond to salvation, here's, here's the craziness of it. We say you need to respond to salvation to be saved. No, no, salvation's been accomplished, okay? Saved or sozo, Greek, okay. That's done. What you and I are called to do is not make this happen. We're called to respond to the fact that this has happened. This is a major shift. It seems like it's not a major shift, but it is a major shift. Because now everything in our lives has nothing to do with us measuring up to be saved. 
Everything in our lives is simply a response to the fact that we have been saved, not by our own accord so that we may boast, Paul says, but it has been done on our behalf so that we can solely give credit to the one that did it on our behalf, which is Christ. That's what Paul says. He says, we got this gospel not by our works so that a man may boast, but through Christ. He's saying, if I earn this, I can say that I did it. But if he did it on my behalf, at no point can I say I did this, which means my life is a living sacrifice to the one that gave himself as a living sacrifice. You don't respond to be saved. You respond to your salvation. Here's my quote. I said it Tuesday night, but I need you to, I'm going to just write it down. I'm going to write it down. This is the best quote I've ever said in my life. So here we go. You ready? Just write this down so y'all have it. Here we go. Here we go. The gospel. I started doing this with my G's like a year ago, and now my brain, I can't do it any other way. It's super weird, right? The gospel is not what, thanks. Who said that, Brandon? Bryson, thanks, Bryson. I can always count on you. The gospel is not what you do with Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus has done with you. The gospel is not what you do with Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus has done with you or for you. That's the gospel. Do you know the gospel, euangelion in Greek? The gospel, first off, is not a Christian term. All right, Matt's taught this, I think, before. I'm sure it was Matt. Um, this sounds like a Matt thing. Uh, in other words, a Matt thing being it's really good. So, because um, everything Matt says is, is way better than something I could say, and it's way shorter than something I would say, and it's still better. Um, <laughs> and I'm not afraid to admit that. But euangelion in Greek does not come from the church. It comes from Alexander the Great. Okay? Alexander the Great, hang with me. Alexander the Great preached a gospel, uh, euangelion, a, a good news is what the gospel means. He preached a good news to the entire known world, and here was his good news. Hellenism is here. So they would invade a territory, they would take it over, and then they would preach the Greek gospel, which is, now that you've been taken over, here's the good news. You get to be Hellenistic. You get education. You get a great economy. You get superpower of the world. You get Alexander the Great as your leader. That's the good news, that you now get to be the measure of everything. That's the good news. The church started using the word gospel as a counter to the Greek idea of good news, which is not that you are the measure of everything. Therefore, what you do in your life has to do with how you do what you do with your life. The good news is actually that God has come and done something on your behalf, which means you're not the measure of everything. He is. But because he is the measure of everything, you no longer have to measure up to anything. Huh? And that's the gospel. God's vision of reconciliation is cosmic, not individualistic. God did not redeem us to give us an easier set of rules. God redeemed us from sin. You are free. 
All of that that once masked your original design and identity is gone. The wheat has been separated from the tear. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Luke 19, Matthew 13, Matthew 18. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18, peace was made through Christ's blood, Colossians 1. I could go on, but we must see that the incarnation as was more than an invitation. The invitation only has relevance because of the reconciliation that has been fully and finally achieved for us. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. We said it a few weeks ago. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Christ has reconciled you, therefore be reconciled. You know what I mean? It's like, what do you mean? If we've been reconciled, why do we need to be reconciled? Paul is saying, no, Christ has reconciled you back to him. Therefore, live like you've been reconciled back to him. That was Paul's gospel. It wasn't do this and you'll be reconciled. It wasn't Jesus opened up the door for reconciliation. It was Jesus accomplished reconciliation. Therefore, live like it, right? Should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Why? That person died. And why would you live as a dead thing? It's not that if you do this, you will die. If you do this, you'll live as something that has died. All right, this is what Anselm of Canterbury, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury from uh, 1093 to 1109, okay? In the late 11th century, early 12th century, this is what he wrote. Now, this is maybe one one of the best quotes ever in history. You ready for this? One of, I say. He wrote this, and he wrote his major works, one of which is called Why God Became Man, which is where this quote comes from. And it says this, ready? For the Father did not coerce Christ to face death against his will or give permission for him to be killed. Uh Uh-oh. Didn't we believe that the Father killed the Son? That God's wrath, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. Did we not sing that growing up? There on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Ooh, ouch. You know what I mean? Sounds good. Missed that one, you know? I mean, right? Brother, that's a hymn. I know. That's the problem. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, brother, you can't mess with the red back hymnal. If they can write it, I can unwrite it. All right. Listen, the Father did not coerce Christ to face death against his will. Uh Uh-oh, what what about the garden? Or give permission for him to be killed. Listen, but Christ himself of his own volition underwent death in order to save mankind. One more time. Y'all didn't get it. For the Father did not, this is the 1100s, okay? The Father did not coerce Christ to face death against his will or give permission for him to be killed, but Christ himself of his own volition underwent death. Why? In order to save mankind. And that's the gospel that exploded across the world. Hey, you Greeks, y'all don't know who Yahweh is, but guess what? You're included. Who is he again? I'll show you, but just so you know, you're in. Not save whoever would have him. See, Jesus was doing something, it's big words, 
on an ontological level that would forever change anthropology. Ontological is the study of um, existence, so how things exist. Anthropology is the study of humanity, okay? Um, which is why the store is called anthropology, because you know, humans. Um, Jesus was doing something on an ontological existence level that would forever change anthropology, humanity. The reason we have such a terrible view, if any view at all, of the world in its present condition is truly rooted in our view of the gospel. Me, not we, is how we think when the message of the gospel is only me as it relates to we. I matter in the story of the gospel only as it relates to us mattering. You see what I'm saying? So here's another practical example. Me being the pastor of this church is not because I'm called to be a pastor. Me being the pastor of this church is the role that I play in the body of this church, right? So I'm here as a pastor because we are called to see God's kingdom come. So my role is not above what's happening at this church. It's within and equal to every other role happening in this church. You know what I'm saying? So, so Tim cleaning outside or, you know, the guys that cleaned up this morning um, and got, got a few blessings uh, when they were cleaning up. Tim knows all about that. Um, <laughs> um, uh, we, we get pooped on online and literally in person. So um, just joking, just joking. Uh, well, actually, that's really not a joke, but, you know, it's, it's, it's true. There's truth in every joke. Um, but everything that we do as a body is, is just as important because the gospel is a we message. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's not an I message. Here's something that I really got to wrestle with personally is it's not just our church either. You know what I'm saying? Like we play a role, which is why I'm so passionate about the church all the time, is we play a role in the greater body of the church across the globe. So we should care about what's happening in the body of the church across the globe. We should celebrate when it's doing great things, which I could do better of. And honestly, we need to put our arms around people and let us know when it's not doing great things. You know what I'm saying? But, but we do that all in a way of working toward unity. I heard somebody say this, and I totally agree with this. Christianity is declining in America, okay? Surprise, like when we made it about everything but Jesus, what did, what did we think? So anyway, there, there was my thing. Okay, there was my thing for today. Um, you, you know, I saw somebody, uh, I, I sent y'all a video that uh, a cert, uh, blessed, blessed Church is um, doing a Christmas show this year with floating drummers floating across the people. And uh, so anyway, yeah, to each his own. So, um, and doing Little Drummer Boy, you know. Um, but anyway, anyway, all that to say, Somebody said this week, and I, I totally agree with it, that the future of the church probably, instead of looking like more churches, probably looks like consolidation of churches. So in other words, probably in 50, 60, 70 years, and you, when you go into Columbia, there's probably not going to be 100 churches anymore. I mean, there's already, decline, like churches are already closing. There's probably going to be five, six churches. To, to which I say, show me the problem. You know, no, no, I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, but really, there, it's going to require us to be in a state of unity 
where some people are going to have to lay down these old doctrines to pick up what the Lord is doing in the earth in order to still be relevant to what the Lord is doing in the earth. You know what I'm saying? See, we think relevancy looks like us looking like Greece. No, relevancy looks like us figuring out what this is actually saying. We got the right stuff. What we don't have is the right tools to, to make the right stuff into what it's supposed to be. Okay? So, Christmas is astounding because God acts decisively and finally on behalf of his people. First the Jews, then the Gentiles, which is all of the human race. Let me read Jeremiah 31, and then I'm going to jump to John 3. So I don't have that much more, I promise you, I promise you. Jeremiah 31, you don't have to turn there. I'll be in John 3 in a second. Um, and I'm going to start at verse 7, just so you can get into the mindset of the exiles as they're looking ahead. Verse 7, for thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness Jacob, for Jacob, excuse me, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, Save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, listen, the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor, a great company, they shall return here. The blind, lame, those with child, and those in labor are the most vulnerable of society. Okay, so that's the way of Jeremiah saying everyone from the least to the greatest uh, will return here. Verse 9, with weeping they shall come and with consolations I will lead them back. I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. Listen, hear this language. I will lead them back. Okay, I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path which they shall not stumble. Why are they not stumbling? Because God is going to keep them from stumbling on the path. For I have become a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is, is another word for Israel. Uh, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd, a flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Listen, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall become like a watered garden and they shall never languish again. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give gladness over their sorrow. I will give the priest their fill of fatness. And that's such a weird verse, right? <laughs> But I, but I can relate. I will give the priests their fill of fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. Jeremiah writes that while they are in exile, having just watched Jerusalem get destroyed. And what Jeremiah is trying to say in the midst of all of this, he's saying there will come a day when the Lord brings everybody back. And not just brings them back, he will redeem. And not just redeem, he will give them fatness and satisfy them with bounty, okay? In order to be fat, they have to have a lot to eat, okay? So this is overflow. This is abundant blessing. 
My people shall be satisfied with my bounty. That's what he's trying to say here. And so uh, that's the view of what happens in exile, okay? Jeremiah writes that while he is exiled actually in Egypt. Jeremiah gets exiled to Egypt. And while the leaders of Judah are in Babylon, exile. Though they are exiled, Jeremiah says, they shall return. This is hope for redemption, okay? Now keep that in mind as... Because they come back, okay? They go back into the land. They rebuild the temple, Nehemiah, or Nehemiah, Lord. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what I meant to say. And um, they come back into the land. They rebuild. They do all of this stuff, but still there is the presence of a longing for a better day, even though they're back in the land, right? And this is the, the, the longing, the hope that Jesus is born into, Okay? So let me start in chapter 3, and the reason I'm reading John 3 is because it's so familiar, we completely miss what John 3 is saying, and I'm going to help try to fix this. So uh, John 3, verse 1. Here we go. Let me take a swig of this, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Why did I just say swig? That sounded so weird. All right, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, okay, uh, I'm not going to stop a lot, but the Hebrew here is, is not just a leader. Um, it's really emphatic. Not Hebrew, Lord. The Greek is uh, really emphatic. So it could say like this. Uh, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews, it could say. Uh, verse 2. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the very presence of God. Okay. We recognize from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. The alternate translation, which I love a lot better, um, not that this is wrong, but very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born anew. This is the other way that could be translated. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. Do y'all kind of, I've taught this before, so do y'all kind of sense what's happening here? Okay. Uh, Nicodemus is speaking exile, or exile, Exodus language, okay? In the Exodus, just a quick review Exodus, it was said that when they went through the waters, it was like a womb, so Israel was born again, okay? When the waters were split, they walk across the Red Sea on dry land. They go through the waters. They're baptized, we could say, and they are born anew through that, out of slavery, right? So here's what Nicodemus is saying. Nicodemus is saying, how can one go back into their mother's womb and be born again? In other words, how can Israel go back into Egyptian slavery and come back through the waters again, again, now that we've done that and it's been centuries since it happened? Okay? So that's kind of what he's talking about here. That's what's going on. And Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. Okay? Um, and just so you know, the spirit right here, same word for wind, it's suke. So wind, breath, spirit, either one could be used there. Uh, seven, do not be astonished that I say to you, you must be born from above or anew. 
The wind blows where it chooses and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the wind or the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we've seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things, you do not believe, and you do not believe, excuse me, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who ascended from, the he- from heaven, excuse me, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Uh, awesome, okay? Now, here comes the real familiar stuff. You ready? 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Bumper sticker. 17. If you're going to get a bumper sticker, get 17. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order the world would be saved through him. 18. Those who believe in him are not condemned. Those who do not believe are already condemned because they have not believed in the name of the only Son. Interesting, really interesting language here. 19. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because of their deeds that were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed." But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Okay, there's so much going on here, but I'm going to focus on one thing, okay? And then we'll maybe get to other things on another week. I don't have time. Uh, But I want to focus on one thing. I want to focus on 16 following. A couple of side notes. Number one, some scholars believe that Jesus' quote may have ended in 15 or 16 and that John the writer steps in and gives his interpretation of what's happening here from 17 through 21, okay? I, I, that seems to be the case. The language shifts, and you can hear it. Um, Jesus goes from speaking about um, being born of wa- uh, water and spirit, heavenly things, Moses, all that stuff, and then suddenly it makes a shift to darkness and light. If you read First John, you get this same language, Okay? So, so it seems like John is giving us a commentary of what Jesus is saying, which is amazing. That's, that's good. Um, first off, you need to understand the context of what's happening. So what precedes this passage, and I'm almost done, so y'all please hang with me, okay? I've had a couple of weeks to really start. What precedes John 3 is the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine, right? And then Jesus clearing the temple, That's what precedes this. So let me read to you the last verses of Jesus clearing the temple, and then maybe we'll get into John 3, what's happening, okay? This is what he says. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed, this is after clearing the temple, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. John 3. Hang on to that. We'll get back to that at the end. Okay? 
So let me give you some Greek words right here. In John 3, specifically 16, 17, around there, um, here's, here's some of the Greek words. I'm going to blow through these. I'm not going to write them down because I don't want to be here all day doing that. But if you want to go back and listen to it to get all the Greek words, you can absolutely do that, okay? But just so you know, I'm not being a heretic or anything. Um, the word new there is the Greek word gnosko, and it's a personal, intimate knowledge. It's you know because you have experienced this person, okay? So when I say I know Jordan, it's not just, oh, yeah, I know Jordan. It's, no, I, I know Jordan. You know what I'm saying? So that's what gnosko means in the Greek, okay? Um, so even right there in John 2, when he says he knew what was in everyone, it wasn't, oh, I know about that. It was, I'm in that. I've experienced what is in everyone. Huge. The word everyone is the word anthropo, which of course is where we get anthropology from, and it means simply humanity, okay? Everyone. Um, okay, in John 3, 15 through 21, let me give you some, some Greek words. The word believe is the word pistis. It is a God-given guarantee that we put our trust in. So, number one, Pistis, to believe, is not something you conjure up, okay? So it's not like, you know, because we, we always used to teach, especially in you know, a lot of churches growing up, and a lot of you grew up in churches like this too, we used to teach that if you'll just have enough faith, someone will be healed, for example, okay? And that's not what faith is, okay? Faith comes from God. It is God's in-birth guarantee that what he spoke will come to pass. That's directly from a Greek lexicon, Okay? So to have faith is to trust in, or we might say to say yes to a God-given guarantee that has been given to you, okay? Uh, the word eternal here, ahianos, ahianos, is not quantity, it is quality. So to say eternal absolutely includes an unlimited amount of days, but the word here is speaking of a characteristic of God who is eternal. Therefore, eternal life can be more fully understood as what we might say, God life. Okay? The word loved is agape, which means to prefer. Okay? Um, the word whoever, whoever believes, is actually the word pos, which means all, the whole, or every kind of. Okay, the word perish means be destroyed. The word life is zoe, which is life eats entirely that comes from and is sustained by God. Okay, and then last one, last one, in verse 18 when it says that um, those who believe in him are not condemned, those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God, that word is a word that comes from pistis, and it means to be entrusted with, to be entrusted with, okay? So, so let me give you maybe um, a, a, a more fully expanded translation of John 3.16. Here's what it might say. For God so preferred his creation that he gave it his unique, one-of-a-kind son so that all who are entrusted with him and trust in him shall not, and the word there is emphatic, so it's shall not know ever, okay? 
shall not ever perish or be destroyed, but have God's own eternal life. Okay? Now, let me give you another one on John 3, 18. Or let me, let me kind of talk to you about it. What does it mean when we take John 3, 18 out of an individual eschatological context? Eschatology is the study of the end, okay? So what happens when we take John 3, 18, those who believe in him are not condemned, those who do not believe are already condemned, and have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. What happens when we remove that verse from A, an individualistic idea of the gospel, and B, an eschatological view of the gospel, which is that everything is aiming toward escaping and going to heaven? Because what we read that verse in, John 3, 18, as, we read it like this. Those who believe in him are not condemned. Those who do not believe are already condemned because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. What do we say condemned means? They go to hell. Why? Because we think of the gospel in terms of the end. What happens in the age to come. And we think of the gospel as individualistic. But the Jews especially did not see the gospel individualistic. They saw it communally. They saw it cosmically. So when they spoke of salvation, they spoke of cosmic redemption or the creation being brought back to how it was designed. So what happens when you take verses like this out of our preconceived ideas and put them back in the context that they were actually made for, right? When you do that, it means that condemnation and not being condemned are actually present realities that we choose to live or not to live in. The Greek word condemned is also the word judged. So let me read it like this with the second verse, verse 19. Those who believe in him are not judged. Those who do not believe in him are judged already because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Okay? So what is he saying here? He's contrasting and comparing darkness and light. Here's some context to see this correctly. Number one, this is happening before the cross. So you, can play, you could take this entire section and place it in the Old Testament and it would fit. It's the time of the Old Testament still, before the cross. So the Old Testament framework, just clear, Jesus, just cleared the temple. Remember what the end of chapter 2 says about entrusting himself to them. Many believed in his name because he saw the signs of it, but Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He didn't need anybody to testify for he himself knew all people entrusted with. What did I tell you the word believed in 318 meant? Because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. The, the, the translation could be, they have not been entrusted with the Son of God. He would not entrust himself to them because he knew them. Okay, so all of the three, all of the three of what I just spoke, the pre-cross, Old Testament framework, Jesus just clearing the temple, and remembering at the end of chapter 2, Jesus talks about he wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew them. All three of those in context of Nicodemus 
himself inquiring on how Jesus' works are happening by default. To question Jesus' power is to deny Jesus' divinity. So the believe not believe refrains are pointed to Nicodemus who represents the entirety of the Jewish people that he leads believing that he is actually God. Is that too much? I know that's a lot. What did I read you in the beginning? There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a or the leader of the Jews. So Nicodemus here is a representative of the Jews. If we need more confirmation of this, later on, Jesus says this, um, we speak of what we know, but you don't understand. I've told you all these things, but you don't believe. No one has ascended except for me. And he says, how can you, the teacher of all of Israel, not understand what is happening here? So he's the leader of the Israelites, of the Jews, and he is the teacher of the Jews. He comes to Jesus and says, how are you doing all of this stuff? To question how Jesus is doing all of this stuff is to question his divinity. If Jesus is God, there's no question of how he's doing all this stuff. So essentially what Nicodemus is coming to Jesus to say is, are you God? Because we're not so sure. Which is why Jesus does not entrust himself to them yet because he knows what's within everyone. Now, I would even quantify that phrase. Him knowing what is in everyone, I think, is a lot deeper than what we see on the surface. You could see that as he knows the deception in everyone, or you could see it as this. He has not entrusted himself to them yet because he knows what's on the inside of everyone that it's going to take a great act to bring out. What the emphasis in John 3.16 specifically is, not whoever believes, but for God so loved that he gave. That's the emphasis of John 3.16. God gave, this is where I want to end, God gave before you and I ever had a chance to choose. Similarly, in the Old Testament, God delivered Israel before giving them a law. If God gives Israel the law before he sets them free, the temptation is to think them being set free was because of how good they kept the law. But he sets them free before he gives them a law so that there is no question as to how they got free. It wasn't because of how they kept the law because they didn't even have the law yet. They were free because God simply chose to set them free. In the same way, God gave because he so loved before the invitation for whoever to believe. For God so loved, and especially in biblical writing, what is mentioned first in a set of words is very important. Okay? For God so loved that he gave his only son. That's the emphasis. He gave it first. Now, whoever believes will not be destroyed, but have God's own life. What is destruction compared to God's life? Living apart from God's life. What does St. Athanasius, man, I should have brought this out here, but I didn't have time. What did Athanasius say about mankind after the fall? He said, was God to let mankind just tumble into, he usually says, non-existence? That's what Athanasius says. 
So for Athanasius, the opposite of God life or eternal life is non-existence. For you to live and then go from living to non-existing, what happens to your life? It must be destroyed or it must perish. So what is Jesus saying here? That if you believe specifically if you trust in what has been given to you, pistis, then you will live the God life that you were made and created for. But if you choose to not believe, judgment has already come on you, and this is the judgment, that God is light, but he came into the darkness, and the darkness is where people decided to live. And let me read it one more time, okay? This is the judgment Jesus says. The, the judgment is this, that the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Here's what he says. Light has come into the world, John 1, the darkness cannot understand it, comprehend it, or overcome it, okay? So light has come into the world, but the people are choosing to live in darkness. Who are the people that he's speaking to? Nicodemus or the Jews, why is he speaking to Nicodemus or the Jews? Because the Jews are the religious ones that believe that this man at best is a prophet, but definitely not God. So in other words, to Nicodemus, he's saying, if you guys continue to believe that I am not what I am, you're gonna find yourself in non-existence. Because what? Why does that make sense? Because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, nothing exists. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. John 1 defines life itself as the Word. So, for Israel, for the Jews, to reject Jesus is simultaneously, according to John, them rejecting life. And them rejecting life causes them to slide into non-existence or perishing. But to be clear, John 3.16 begins with, for God so loved that he gave. You choosing to live in the dark is you choosing to live in a very crappy version of life. But just so we're clear, even if you choose to live in the dump, it still doesn't change the fact that God so loved that he gave. So you can live your entire life rejecting who you are, and you're going to find yourself depressed and anxious and worried and worried sick to death about what's happening next and worried about how this is going to play out and worried about where you're going to work and where you're going to live and how you're going to get a relationship and how you're going to have kids and you're already 30 and you're not having kids yet, so maybe I'm wrong and... You're going to start where, but when you believe that you are in the light, then everything has purpose, even the stuff that you can't define right now. You know what I'm saying? So, so let me give you an example. Let's say you're single, like a lot of y'all in here. No, that's not a bad thing, okay? Let's say you're single, because it seems like when people get in relationships, they stop following the Lord. So maybe y'all need to be single for a while until you get that figured out. But, I mean... So, uh, just wanted to let that one sit for a second. Okay. God's calling me. No, he's, God's not calling you. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, what happens 
when you're single, but you're in the light. Suddenly, you begin to define even you being single as a gift from the one who had every one of your days numbered before one of them came to be. There must be purpose in this. When you see things in the dark, you begin to slide into non-existence, which is, I'm doomed. I'm not in where I need, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not who I need to be. I'm not with who I need to be. I should have stayed with that boyfriend back in high school. He wasn't great. You know, he emotionally abused me, but at least I would have been with somebody. You know, whatever. You know, you know what I'm saying, right? When instead we find ourselves born again through the waters in the light, we suddenly find ourselves with purpose in everything. Everything has purpose because it's all in Christ. So even this church, you know, as a pastor, you could look at this church and say, oh man, like, why, why aren't we growing? Or you could look at this church and say, maybe the Lord has such a purpose for this that he's keeping it pure for a very long time. Take your pick. You know what I'm saying? So I want to read uh, a couple more things real fast. Um, the world is lost, okay? But it is not dying. It is not a lost and dying world. It's a lost world that is being redeemed. We must shift our focus to become what we are and shift our focus away from trying to become something that we are not. The creation is good, Genesis 1. Therefore, Romans 8, 18 through 21 is speaking to creation groaning to fully be what it has always been, but it follows us. Therefore, we must remove the masks, trust in what has been given to us, and live like we have God life. But to do that, we must die first. Isaiah, hop up here. Let me read another quote to you real quick. Two more quotes and I'm done. Uh, whew, thought I was earlier. All right. Uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is in another quote called the uh, book called The Cost of Discipleship. Amazing. But this is what he says. The call of Jesus makes the disciple community not only the salt, but also the light of the world. Their activity is visible as well as excuse me, imperceptible. You are the light. Once again, it is not you are to be the light. They already are the light because they cannot be otherwise. And if they were, it would be a sign that they are not or had not, excuse me, been called by him. Do you hear this? He says, when God calls us to be the light, he does not say you need to do this. He says, you are the light of the world. How impossible, how utterly absurd it would be for the disciples, these disciples, such men as these, to try to become the light of the world. No, they are already the light, and the call has made them so. Nor does Jesus say, you have the light. The light is not an instrument which has been put into their hands, such as their preaching. It is the disciples themselves. The same Jesus who, speaking of himself, said, I am the light, says to his followers, you are the light in your whole existence, provided you remain faithful to your calling. And since you are the light, you can no longer remain hidden even if you want to. 
It is the property of light to shine. It is the property of light to shine. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. It can be seen for miles away, whether it is a fortified borough, a stronghold, or a tottering ruin. This city set on the hill, the Israelite would instinctively think of Jerusalem on high, is the disciple community. Last part. But this is not to say that the disciples have now to make their first decision. Listen. The only necessary decision has already taken place. Now, they must be what they really are. Does this sound familiar? Now they must be what they really are. Otherwise, they are not followers of Jesus. The followers are a visible community. Their discipleship visible in action, which lifts them out of the world. Otherwise, it would not be discipleship. And of course... The following is as visible to the world as a light in the darkness or a mountain rising from a plain. Do you hear this? This is the cost of discipleship. And he says, the call is not for you to be the light. The call is not for you to become the light. The call is for you to accept and embrace the fact that you are the light. And it's not because of something that you have done by your decision. It's because of something he has done by a decision that was made for you before you were ever born. Before you took a breath, God made the decision to bring you into the light. And most of us have spent our entire lives trying to become light. Because religion told us that you have to become something in order to be something. No, you have to simply embrace the fact that you are something in order to live like you're something that you were before you were ever born. He knits you together in your mother's womb, not the devil. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then David says, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And we have the guts to say people are born into sin. No, nope. It was not the devil that knit you together in your mother. It was God himself that knit every fiber of your being together in your mother's womb. You are his. I'm going to read one more quote from my book. And then we're done. If sin keeps us from bearing the image and likeness of God, certainly we need to flee from sin. And certainly it had to be undone and dealt with forever. But only for the purposes of restoring our humanity was sin dealt with. God was not wrathful toward our sin alone. God was wrathful, wrath, excuse me. God was wrathful toward that which stood in between who we were and who we intrinsically are which is sin and idolatry and ignorance and religious ways, etc. When we find ourselves on the night Jesus was born, we find that we have missed something for so many years that God has not forgotten us. 
Like a father who runs after his kids when they run away, God chases us down through the generations of running, and on this fateful night, the angels declare, on earth, peace among those whom he favors. Peace was something the Roman emperor claimed to deliver the people. And here, Luke is juxtaposing peace with God's glory. There is nothing that humanity can produce that provides the peace and harmony of original design. However, in this moment where God takes his first breaths in human form, peace is imputed to humanity because God is human in Christ. Humanity is God in Christ, and that is atonement. It is making things one. On that night... It was not what Israel had done that gave them peace. It was God saying, you shall not run any longer. Like a parent that chases after their kids when they run away. If Vader ran away from home, I would not let her run away. I would chase her down until she came back home. Like a parent that chases after their kids stubbornly. God chases us down through the generations of wondering. And on this night, a declaration is made on earth. Peace to whom God favors. Peace to whom shalom. The, the, the restoration of shalom. Peace to all whom God favors. So y'all bow your heads and close your eyes with me. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you that what we find on Christmas night, what we find in this middle of nowhere town, Bethlehem, is you tangibly reminding us that you have not left us, that you have not forgotten us. I'm reminded of that um, song Defender that we sing in the bridge where it says, um, when I thought I lost me, you knew where I left me. You reintroduced me to your love. You picked up all my pieces and put me back together. You're the defender of my heart. And can you imagine Israel this night? When I thought I lost me, you knew. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. and was tempted with every temptation that we would face so as to relate to us in every way. He breathed our air. He ate our food. He walked our streets. He saw what we see. He touched what we touched. The Son of God laying in a, in a bed with a rock for a pillow. Amen. 
And not just that, he worked a job like we work. Listen, he was a carpenter much longer than he was a minister. He was only a minister for three of his 33 years. The rest of the time, he worked. And this is where the Ellen Davis quote, I, I love, I love this, where she, she gets us to imagine, dares us to see. And I think the quote goes something like this. She says, um, no greater, I think it was table, no greater table was built than that which came from the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. I mean, G- Jesus worked a job longer than he was a minister. And we get so caught up in this vision of Jesus doing miracles, and we forget that before Jesus ever did a miracle, he built really good tables. Before he ever did a miracle, he was a great carpenter. What, what does that say? He relates to us in every way. In every way. Think about this. The, the creator God had to get a job and be paid by what he made from that job. What is this? Like we think God became flesh and then went around healing people, went on a cross and rose again, and we completely missed that the majority of his life, he lived the same way you and I live. God subjected himself to every single thing that we face because he refused to live without us. And we have the, the, the craziness to make this a gospel about God's hate toward us, about God's at best tolerance of us. He loves us because he has to. I'm just a sinner. If you were just a sinner saved by grace, if you're just snow-covered dung, like one of the, I won't mention, one of the, one of the fathers said, if that's all you are, then it meant nothing for Jesus to do the things that he did. Because it sure did not help a lot. Now, he, he did not give you a better law, an easier law to keep, an easier set of rules. He redeemed you from the inside out. The father did not coerce the son to face death, and it was not of God's own choosing that he faced death, but it was Christ himself that chose death to save all of mankind. Verse 